Well, here we are at Vox Days in Singapore. It's very exciting. I just saw uh, Josh Long talk. He, uh, he gives a good, I was noticing he gives like a good 20-minute introduction mm-hmm. just talking about the bird on the book that he has. But, but it was, it was uh, fun nonetheless. Why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Rahul. I'm a software engineer here at Pivotal Labs Singapore. Um, just a little bit about myself. I've been part of Pivotal, uh, I've been part of Neo uh, from before Pivotal acquired us, and so all in all, I've been here for around four years. Oh, that's longer than me. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> you know, you know where all the secret bathrooms are. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've I've seen the office like. Uh, grow from a really small number to like um, a much bigger space, grow into a bigger space. Also have been part of a lot of different projects, everything from like startups to like government agencies to multinational companies that include like banks um, and have worked in like lots of different uh, domains. It's yeah. been one of the great things of working. At that that is an advantage you have like doing work like Pivotal is you get, you get exposed to a whole lot of things. Well, so... So we were talking earlier about how uh, some of the projects you've worked on, I mean, it's for larger organizations. And, you know, a characteristic of large organizations is they tend to make a lot of money, be large. (laughs) Otherwise, they would be non-existent organizations. That's true. And in the IT area, I always figure like that implies they have a lot of existing software that makes a lot of money. And we call that legacy. (laughs) Right? And. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, the, the jokey thing I always think about legacy is like legacy is that software that like you have to change, but you're really afraid to change. Yeah. Otherwise, you just call it software. <laughs> <laughs> but you had the chance to, to work on some of those things. And I mean, how would you characterize these um, legacy systems, the software? I think, I think even before I get into like what I've seen that could be labeled legacy, just just very interesting thing that someone told me um, sometime back that really stuck with me was, Computer science is the only place where legacy is used in a negative connotation. <laughs> that's true. You don't say Albert Einstein's legacy as right, he left right. behind. Yeah, that's funny. Right? So it's, it's a shame that um, when, many times when we are building software, we don't think about how it's going. Uh, we're not leaving something in a state that is to support the future right, engineers right. who are going to help it. And when, when um, care is not put into maintaining your software and maintaining a high code quality, it basically becomes really hard for anyone else who's going to be working on it in the future. Yeah. And that is why we call it like, label it legacy software and it's like something that you don't want to mess with. Yeah, yeah. No, um, no one calls it like heritage software. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. And, and so why, why do you think that is? Why do you think it, it hasn't become common practice uh, to avoid it going legacy like and, mm-hmm. and and as an ex- example of that not happening i mean i'm sure we could always as an industry get better at unit testing and yeah. testing but it seems like over the past 15 or so years it's now part of a developer's mindset that like i do the tests right yeah. so we, we somehow fix that mm-hmm. but how how has it come about that this creating legacy <laughs> is, is still something uh, we do. I mean, even, I mean, testing is definitely one part of it. So the, the fundamental thing to think about is when we are talking about testing, we are, we, the primary goal of testing is to get high confidence. And mm. the really, the reason for high confidence is just to let you refactor more often. And that right, gives right. you the freedom to leave your code at a very high quality. So anytime you see something that's, it could be optimized, you could go back in and fix it. So, I wouldn't say that just adding tests for the sake of adding tests is going to solve that problem. You need to have the right kind of test to give you the confidence and the freedom to refactor often. 
Oh, right, right. And um, oftentimes what I've seen is, although you have tests, some, some the way it is tested is really rigid or you're not testing the right things which are uh, which um, are the risky parts of the system or the tests are so flaky that you can't actually trust your test code base. Yeah. And you need tests for your tests. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in those scenarios, um, developers tend to be reluctant to go back in and to make changes to parts of the code that they don't understand intimately. Yeah. And uh, that is one of the things I've seen contribute to legacy code very often. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess there is a healthy fear of screwing things up <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that developers have. But then if you don't have the, the mm-hmm. safety nets of, exactly. of tests in there, yeah. which, which I guess, like, I mean, one of the only books I've ever found about legacy code is, it's pretty old now, but is that Michael Feather's book. Yes, Working about, Effectively yeah, with Legacy Code. Yeah, yes. which starts off with, with one of my favorite, uh, I don't know, Zen things. Yeah. You probably remember it too, but it's like, uh, what is it? The change legacy code, we need tests, but then legacy code is code without tests. So <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that that book has um, kind of held the test of time. Yeah. And it's something that we still recommend to clients because oftentimes when people see the practices that we follow, like test-driven development, um, it is it seems very intuitive to apply it to something like a greenfield project where you're starting right. from scratch when before you write your first line of code, you write your test. That, Although it is a mind, mindset shift, it's still something that's easier to uh, palette. Right. Um, but what's harder is in most cases, like you mentioned, like these big companies that have been making a lot of money and have these systems that have been, they have been working, but they're not, they're not, they're very rigid and people right. are scared they can't to be go. evolved. They can't as be fast evolved. They, yeah, every change that you want, need to make to that system takes a lot more time. So in these cases, companies want to know, and companies and teams want to know how can they start doing TDD. Do we only test things that we build, like new things we build? Yeah. And that's even then, since you're working with this legacy system, you need some kind of security. So there are some tactical stuff in that book that we still recommend. Yeah. Like, so so what, what, what are y'all, uh, when, when you're working with people, what do you recommend for them? And, 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 and then, you know, part of that is what works well and doesn't work well or, or is challenging? Like, how does it okay. play out? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think uh, the book covers really well is that you need to have few really high value um, automation tests that document the existing functionality so that mm. whenever you are making new changes to the system, you're not breaking existing functionality that other systems are relying right. on. So that's just like adding like that basic uh, net. But, uh, but that aside, the main thing that we try to look at is most often these kind of legacy systems tend to be this uh, ops, uh, like uh, very uh, opaque monolithic mm. applications. We try to go in and find these domain boundaries trying to find um, where does it make sense to slice and dice the system so that we can uh, maybe it could be like we rewrite parts of it. We may pull things out and make it separate uh, services, but um, it's effectively just finding these boundaries that we can wrap more tests around and then slowly like do this iteratively till we are able to make them really uh, well Factored code, right? And and if I, if I remember the the feather stuff, he one of the words he uses is like you find the seams, mm-hmm. like yeah. like the uh, yeah. And and nowadays you would say boundary because bounded it's, it's context more fun. Yeah, from yeah. DDD. And, yes. and 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 along those lines. So in this context, how do you how do you figure out those boundaries? I mean, I mean, like I don't know. You could pick a simple domain like 
bill paying or reservations or whatever, but how would you, what's a good example of what a boundary is? Uh, this is this is a really tough question. I mean, I don't really have a good answer for this, but the way, you, generally when you talk to, one uh, one thing I like to do is I go to these teams and ask them, okay, why don't you draw, draw me a component diagram? Like, mm. tell me what are the boxes and arrows and just tell me what are the systems that interact with each other. And by systems, I don't mean separate deployments, but it's just like, different components like what is your mental model yeah and generally yeah. they have a really good sense and you can really extract that out that's that's interesting you, yeah. they sort of like already know the boundaries exactly. they just they may not already, think about it that way exactly so that is already the case most often these tend to be really intertwined uh-huh. but that's where we can help them trying to extract it that is one if that doesn't help the other approaches um i really believe in pivotal's way of having the balance team and we take cues from the design and the uh, product requirements to see what would be a bounded context. Mm. So we kind of try to find a ubiquitous language where we have this common uh, terminologies across business, technology, okay. and design. And uh, those terminologies kind help us, help guide our decision on like whether this makes sense as a bounded context. And, and so in that instance, is it is it often the case, so you have, just to simplify it, you've yeah. got the the business's conception of mm-hmm. of uh, the boundaries, yes, and then the the developer's conception of mm-hmm. the boundaries, and are those things often the same, or do they conflict, or how, how does that line up? I've seen surprisingly in most cases they line up mm. closely. Well, that's great. <laughs> that is good because uh, generally they get the requirements from the yeah. business, and they generally use the same terminologies. That is good. The other reason they end up lining up is Conway's law. So the people who are right. like high up decide, okay, these are the things that I'm, I've been talking about. These are the things I promised my CTO. So I'm going to make these teams. Oh, that makes a lot and of sense. And these teams, uh, so Conway's law is um, that the structure of a code base reflects the communication pathways of right, your right. team. So if you have two different teams and you have like a team that is like a booking team and the other one is a reservation team. Uh-huh. It so ends up that there's a booking bounded context and a reservation bounded context. The level of separation between these contexts depend on the uh, on the discipline of the developers in the team itself. But yeah. generally, that's an easy way to see. Like, okay, that seems like a scene which you could pull out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting because it's it's very hopeful, <laughs> and and uh, it's almost like again, like there's the there are these latent boundaries that people mm-hmm. don't realize they've. Even they put that work in for, and then and in the context of legacy, I imagine it's very helpful because, as as you're saying, it starts to make that opaque black black monolith, so to speak, like mm-hmm. a lot more understandable. Yeah. So so let's say you've broken up mm-hmm. a couple of boundaries, then like what's the next step for for doing? And and I always like to ask a question and then keep talking. So <laughs> pardon that tick, but but I'm guessing what you do is so our our main problem with with updating legacy stuff is we don't have good enough tests and so we're trying to break it up so that then we can put tests in place and then we can start changing it mm-hmm. right and then so so then going back we found the boundaries you've got the monolith so yeah. then what do you do so um oftentimes uh, what ends up happening is uh, what we like to think about think of as the app continuum mm-hmm. you when once you like one end of the app continuum is when you have like um um, opaque monolith and the other end is having like lots of 
well structured microservices right because right. you could have like a distributed monolith that's a terrible thing but like <laughs> if you think of like completely um decoupled services and a monolith as the scale we are basically trying to shift it towards somewhere in the middle where you right. want a well structured uh, well um a, a monolith that has separation across functional boundaries yeah. and um the benefit of doing that is you have testing at multiple levels you can have unit testing you can have integration testing between closely coupled uh, components and then you can have like uh, automation testing for the whole system or even like one extra level of testing for how this system works with other systems that uh, exist in the organization so, so, so i mean yeah. is it uh, to ask a it's not mm-hmm. obvious but a simplistic mm-hmm. question is it do you find that it's extremely common that people only test outside the box like like for example if you followed a classic three tier application thing yeah. i mean you've got pretty pretty good boundaries <laughs> and and you would expect that people would have tests in between them mm-hmm. but maybe they don't actually uh, that's an interesting one because that, uh, there we are talking about whether we want to how do we find these boundaries mm. oftentimes right. it becomes really easy to say okay database is one boundary my services one boundary my controllers another boundary so this is my three boundaries i'm going yeah, to test yeah. what we uh, you could definitely have unit tests for each individual one but when we're thinking of having like integration test we want to split across yeah. functional vertical slices so that's, we take that's like a good a, insight yeah, like a the... little bit of the uh, database layer a little bit of the services yeah. a little bit of the controller but they make sense together so they all work together to fulfill one user requirement so and and i guess that's a characteristic of a of a boundary in in in, exactly. the, in the bdd sense exactly. is that it's from the perspective of an end to end process yes. instead of database or control exactly. tier yeah. or ui because at the end of the day your controller the framework you use the database choice everything is an implementation detail and yeah. the real crux of the value lies in the business uh business models and the domain itself okay. and that's that's what you are customizing for your client so and, and so I, i guess in that context then it would make a lot more sense that people hadn't thought about these let's call them uh i always get my vertical and horizontal these vertical <laughs> slices yeah. as, as the boundaries and people probably haven't been writing tests on on that boundary but they might have been writing tests on talking to the database exactly yes so uh, of, sometimes we see that um so it changes from different um in different engagements like one of the common ones i see is there's just unit testing there's no integration testing whatsoever mm-hmm. because unit testing is easy to understand and easy for devs to start writing so yeah. that's one the other extreme is there's no unit testing there's no like uh, component level testing but there's like um end to end integration testing of user flow so they basically right. bring up the whole app and have automation testing where some uh, the the code goes and clicks actually right, right. physically clicks buttons and type stuff just like classic apm stuff yeah, yeah, like, yeah. The, like the classic style of automation testing so yeah. what do they think about so what often happens is in either one of these scenarios what uh, the problem we face is there's no uh, there's not a really good testing pyramid so we don't mm-hmm. have like a good distribution of uh, con- uh good mix of uh, having a lot of cheap tests and a few very costly tests but highly valuable tests because you want your code base to be uh, um, your testing uh, your tests to have high confidence 
So you provide you high confidence. At the same time, be very cheap because you want to be able to run them as often as possible and they shouldn't take right. more than, I don't know, a couple minutes to execute end-to-end. So, right? so you want to have as much of your testing done in the lower levels where the cost of each individual test is very small. That makes sense. So you yeah. want a lot of unit tests, but you also want to have these very high value um, integration tests, but very few of them. So you need to be very selective. That makes sense. So having a good balance between these different levels of testing is what I find being uh, one of the most uh, common shortcomings of the Yeah, testing. yeah. Because I, I guess it's a kind of a fallacy to think that the uh, with unit tests, that the sum is greater than the parts. But in fact, the sum is less than the parts. <laughs> or, I mean, so to speak, like, like yeah. you, you can't just you can't just sum up all your unit tests and be done exactly. with the whole system. Exactly. You need to yeah. actually write yeah. system wide sort there, of tests. There are there are different uh, there are different things that you're testing at each level. Right, right. At the unit level, you're just testing each individual unit behaves the way it's expected. At each. Uh, uh, each level above that, you're trying to see how they interact with the, uh, these units interact with each other and so mm. on. So the, the type of confidence you get at each level of testing is very different and all of them are equally valid. So I, 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 I mean, tell me more about this concept of confidence you keep, uh, okay. you keep mentioning in, in, in the context of all yeah. of this, right? Like what, that sounds interesting, but what, uh-huh. what, what do you mean by that? Okay, so the, this is something that I've recently been thinking about a lot as well. Um, Oftentimes when we start talking to clients about, you know, testing is important, you should uh-huh. make sure that your, your code is all very well tested. Oftentimes they're like, okay, how do I track this? And they jump onto this uh, vanity metric, what I consider vanity metric, which is code, uh, test coverage. Right. So I want to really be careful about when I'm talking about good level of testing, I don't, want, I don't mean test coverage. You just need the right le- amount of testing to give you high confidence because that's the goal at mm. the end of the day. If you are aiming towards getting a test coverage as close to 100% as possible, it's act- there's like diminishing returns. You, just, you can make do with like 80% or 90%. Uh, in different projects, like I've been on projects where the code coverage has, uh, the test coverage has been like 97% and sometimes it's been uh, down to like 80 or something. But at the end of the day, we... All we want to track is that uh, we are having the confidence to deploy code to production as soon as I see a green CI. I don't want if I see green, I should be able to deploy. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's that. Like abstracting that several layers up. It seems like there's an ongoing uh, there's a, like in the, in the area of thought technologies, so to speak. There's an ongoing like tension between. I don't know absolute thinking versus relative thinking. That's the wrong framing, but it's sort of like. You could think about coverage that you have. You have a hundred percent coverage, so everything's green. Yeah. But do you care, right? Like, like exactly. just, just because you have doesn't 100- matter to you. Yeah, it's like, just a vanity metric. Yeah, just because you have a hundred percent coverage doesn't actually mean that it's good. Exactly. <laughs> that, so it's I'm, it's it's good to make sure you're covering everything, but it's also good to make sure that you're confident that that means your software yeah. is of high quality. And so, how do how do you how do people like track that? Like, do you just ask them or? Do you do the thing where five people vote and you take the average <laughs> of it? Or like, how do you figure um, out what I that mean, is? I mean, there are ways, like, you can obviously do the voting thing where you talk to the team and ask, like, what's our confidence in our test right now? Yeah. Um, but yes, this is one of those compli- uh, difficult things because it's not easy to estimate confidence. You, although you have some tells, like, one of the easiest ones is... Um, if you if you can ask the dev, hey, I see a green CI board. Can I deploy the 
your code to production? And yeah. if they're like, yes, that's that's a sign that, yeah, there is enough confidence. And that's what we are aiming towards. The further away it is from that ideal state, the less reliable your test. Yeah, is. yeah, that, that, that uses like a, like a Nassim Talebian kind of Talebian kind of trick, which is like, he would call it skin in the game, <laughs> which is okay. to say like, if, if you want to get good, I don't know math stuff, but I, if you want to get like good probability predictions from uh-huh. someone, you have to make it so that if, if they're wrong, there's a consequence, <laughs> right? And then, and then, so they're still going to be wrong because it's probability yeah. and, and stats and stuff. But like, it at least makes them put in that extra effort. Just like you're saying, you would go to the developer and say, like, "All right, it's Friday. Can we deploy this code? Yeah. If something goes wrong, you're going to have to come in on Saturday. Now, if you tell me we can't deploy the code, you can still leave for the weekend. And we'll come back on Monday. It's totally fine. Yeah. But I just want to make sure that you're confident <laughs> in this code. Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, like we don't. I'm not encouraging anyone to come back on Saturdays yeah, and yeah, weekends. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's just yeah. a demonstration yeah, of how you have some consequences. It's one of those things because uh, there are a few vanity metrics, like, for example, like velocity, right? The actual yeah. number of points per week. What you're aiming for is not like crazy high points. You're not saying like, I want to aim for 50 points of velocity this week. What you want is consistency and you want to see it growing week after week. That's right. what you're aiming for. Similarly, in your test coverage, you want to see a relatively high number, but... There is no no hard and fast rule that if you are able to hit 95% uh, co- uh, test coverage, your uh, you are, your testing is on point and you don't need to worry about anything else. No, that makes because, sense. Because I've been in um, organizations where um, the technical leadership decided, let's put a number, let's put like 80% test coverage and if you don't hit 80 percent test coverage you can't deploy your code yeah it's really easy to get high test coverage because you can just have one test that exercises all your code and never actually tests anything yeah that's true exactly <laughs> you so can reduce the, the raw number you can of tests mock you it you can really get around these kind of metrics and as engineers we are really smart and you know we find lazy easy solutions to solve these problems right right but getting a high uh, test coverage Number it shouldn't be the goal of the team. It's a happy side effect. Right, right. And so, all right. So, we figured found our seams or our boundaries. Sure. We've got some tests in, and we have we have confidence that we could do these changes. Mm-hmm. So, that, so then, what do you do? Like, how do you? I assume the next step is you actually make the changes. <laughs> oh, I mean, we are, we are making changes all throughout this part. Right, we right. don't we don't just say okay, let's take two months to sit and refactor all your code before we start making changes. Mm, okay, okay. What, um, in general, what we like to do is we start with something, we start with one single user functionality that we have, um, we have talked to users, we have validated it, something that's important. We have made sure that business is invested in trying to solve this one problem for their users. And we start by implementing that new functionality. And along the way, slowly, um, refactor the parts of the existing code that this piece, new piece of code touches and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And we slowly uh, want to change as much as possible, but it starts with that one seed. We don't want to go boil the ocean. We want to start right, small. Right, right. Yeah. So you sort of attack, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you attack the the big picture of testing, right? Like we have to test that we have to be confident yeah. that we can test we add the whole some system. level of uh, some, because at the end, again, we need confidence. And, and then very early on when you've identified mm-hmm. some boundary, you can, you actually go in and start making changes to the code. Yeah. Almost maybe not exactly in parallel, but very early on. Yeah. And, then, and then you have overall confidence that the system can be checked and you're, you're really adding more tests to that little yeah. component that yeah. you have. And yeah. 
And what do you find, like, I don't know, like, like, what's the oldest type of code that you found that you go in and change? Like, oldest type of code? Or not type, but like, like do, you, do you go in and it's like, oh, this is written 10 years ago and, uh, and you have to change it? So your... I've actually uh, been part of a project where we were trying to replace something that was written 15, 16, 15 to 20 years ago. Mm. It's a really old piece of code, but we kind of, uh, the, it was written in a mainframe system and uh, we, um, the decision was made that we will replace it rather than trying to uh, uh, update right. parts of it right. because it no longer made sense to do that. So it was part of like a slow replacement. So we, uh, because this was a backend system, we could go by API endpoint by API endpoint. Oh, right. So you, that could, was a very you, could, neat... you could just replace the actual implementation exactly. between the API. Yeah. So huh. we would just like route the new API endpoints to our system. Right, right, right. We could do that. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's sort of a way if, if you had to make a decision like we're going to rewrite this code or, you know, update the code or we're just, I, let me rephrase that. We're going to change, modify this code versus we're just going to rewrite it. <laughs> we're going to yeah. like get rid I mean, of it. It's totally. always a decision. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I am wary of just asking people to just rewrite whatever doesn't work. Yeah. It's That's expensive. Something, it's very expensive. <laughs> and basically, although you, you would be getting a lot of velocity and everyone is happy, devs are happy. In reality, users are not getting any new value. You yeah. have to first reach, uh, like at least value parity to the existing system before you're able to provide new value. Yeah. Right. So you you would spend uh, the you're expecting your clients and the dev teams to invest months or, year, or maybe even like years of effort trying to replace the system and during the whole time the company is not releasing new functionality. Yeah, and then the software just acts exactly like it did before. This is scary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you don't want that. So there has to be a very clear reason. There has to be a very clear goal for yeah. what, why we are doing what we are doing. Yeah, that, that's always a, a, a part of, and we're not the only ones to do it, but part of the, the labs process and overall pivotal approach I think is good is like uh, someone should care, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, like you were saying early on, like yeah. you need to identify the business side of things and find out what they need to happen. And that's ultimately what you're servicing, right? Like yeah. if you've got to do all this rigmarole that we talked about of updating legacy code, the end is still like, we need to make the software better, yeah. not not just updated or whatever. Yeah. Which uh, I think that's really easy for people to lose track of. Yeah, and and then and then also, it's not only the the nerds' fault. It's also like the <laughs> business people. They need to know that they should be involved in that and yeah. be pushing for it. Mm -hmm. That they should expect it. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes um, in our projects, the technical aspects are not the most challenging things to overcome. It's often just changing the mindset or trying to make sure that the different parts of the business and the uh, different parts of business, IT, design, user support, all of them are working together on trying to solve something. Right. So the thing I like to re remind devs is that uh, you know, anything can be built, but should it be built is the question. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah, you could do whatever you want. <laughs> and and so, so in doing this work, are there, are there sort of like common tools that, that you end up using a lot and that come up? Like what... Like, like if you were to get your, uh, I guess in the world of software, it's metaphoric, but your metaphoric toolbox together, like, okay. like what are the things that you try, you typically want to start with? Like, uh, do you have like code scanners or like, oh, like, okay. do you, do you use a lot of like, you know, re auto refactoring things where you right click on a mouse button and it does stuff or like what, I, I don't uh, even okay. know. Like, uh, so what, what are the things that come up over and over again? There's a lot of different tools that we use. Um, I mean, but we keep it really light for the most part. So we do. Um, I like uh, IntelliJ. 
and it comes with lots Everyone of like, around support. Here seems to yeah, like exactly. Yeah. So I like IntelliJ, and it's an easy way. It's good to since uh, just stepping back one uh, one step is one of the things that we um, try to focus on is pairing, and that is our way of um, introducing new concepts and making sure that we are able to ramp up uh, new devs or like our counterparts from the client side. And when we're doing pairing, it's often nice to come up with a shared understanding on the tools, languages, right. and frameworks that we're going to use for this duration so that you know, everyone is comfortable. So you, I can't be writing in Vim while my pair, is, pair wants to work with Emacs. It's not sure. going to work. So we both have to like, one person has to be like, okay, I, I'll work in your way. <laughs> yeah. So oftentimes we come to that agreement on what tools we use and we try to standardize at least like some things around like code style or um, just like auto refactoring. IntelliJ does a really good job because you have plugins that do that. Right, uh, right. So like you can have the Google Java styling if you're using Java. Similarly, JavaScript has lots of different style, um, yeah. existing available style guides that you can use. So that just makes sure that... Um, the code looks similar from different pairs and it's it's one of those low-hanging fruits that really helps the readability of your code base. Um, other than that, we um, one of the other tools that we uh, set up very early on in our system uh, is having a repository and having a continuous integration system. So one of the happy side effects of test-driven development is that you have a lot of tests and good coverage and you can rely on a machine to run your tests every time anyone makes changes to the code base. Right. And the CI will be our automated pipeline that promotes code for, between different environments. And each time it promotes the code and it gets closer to production, the level of confidence in that particular build is higher and higher. Yeah. And once you're happy and everybody is like signed off, you can just automatically just deploy it to prod. So it should... It's, we try to make it as seamless as possible to get to production because getting to production is as easily as possible is very important yeah, because yeah. it shouldn't be something that like, okay, fine, let's all stop work. Let's freeze our code today. And then next one week, we're just going to do prod support. We yeah. don't want that. We don't want it to be a big ceremony. We just want it to be like a regular thing that you can do anytime. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so as part of these processes, sometimes we do have some uh, tools that can do like security vulnerability checks. It can do like test coverage, just one uh, thing. We sometimes, especially when we're working with really um, old systems, which we don't fully understand with lots of conditionals and things like that, we uh, sometimes opt in for a mutation testing tool. Mm, wait, so what's that? This one, uh, these are some tools that can... What it does, it goes through your actual code. Uh, and oftentimes when you're doing test coverage, it's a static analysis. It looks at the lines of code that are being executed. But when you do look at mutation um, testing tools, it goes through all the possible code paths. Oh, so okay. all the possible execution paths in your code. And then it flips some ifs here and there and sees if any of your tests have broken. So suppose you flip an if, uh, like a, a fork in your logic, and nothing breaks, that means there's one part of the logic that is not being tested. And it'll give you a, a report that talks about it. Huh. So it's a really interesting tool. I've used it only once. And um, yeah, it was for a very specific module, which we didn't have visibility on. Um, I'm not really sure how it scales. I've never tried it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like with certain types of code bases, it would 
run longer than we live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, th- that's it. We try to keep it really light. Most of the other things uh, that we introduce, most of the other practices are some things that we introduce while working together. So mm-hmm. we have uh, we have a lot of whiteboards. So we try to jump up there and draw lines and boxes to have these shared conversations. Uh, We have regular retros to understand what the team's feeling. Yeah. Lots of meatware as it were. Exactly. And and so, I mean, when you, when you're working with older languages, do you need like tools to like comprehend COBOL or something or like, does that ever come up? Luckily I've never had to work with COBOL, but (laughs) when, there have been uh, some clients who have come to us asking about like working in these kind of uh, older technologies. Um, we would like to have some domain experts and maybe language experts right. embedded into the team so that we are able to you know help each other out in making sure that the client is successful. Yeah. My, my understanding of COBOL is as long as you keep the caps lock key on, then you're an expert at it. <laughs> you, you, just, you just need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and oftentimes, if you're working with COBOL, it's not just the COBOL. It also comes yeah, with like a mainframe and yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's all, uh, like deploying things to it is really difficult. And working, uh, if you're not working on site, it's very difficult. So there's lots of challenges right. and we try to resolve them on a case by case basis. So, so, then, so then finally, before we wrap up, okay. uh, so as you're going through this process, mm-hmm. like, and you mentioned a, a little bit of this, but what are like what's your sort of like starting amount of let's, I don't want to say just metrics, but the reporting that you do, like, you know, you've got the test coverage mm-hmm. and you might have reporting about the confidence that you have, but are there other, other things that come up when you're in the meeting with the managers or, you know, meeting with yourself is one thing in retros, yeah, yeah, but yeah. like when, when it's time for the, uh, the monthly review of should you still get funding and how <laughs> is this going? Like, what do you present to those people? So wh- at the end of the day, what we present is the real product. <laughs> so okay, we right, right. Try, if you're deploying often enough, we always show the real product and be like, here, is, here it is, feel free to play with it. Um, we try to steer clear of reports because often they give you a false sense of predictability onto mm. a... It's just like a unit test coverage stuff, right? Yeah. Like you get obsessed with the, you get, the report. Uh, yeah, but at the same time, there are, we are working with... Um, organizations that have been doing these kind of strict deadlines, burn down charts, burn up charts, whatever. Sure. So we, we can obviously generate these reports. We use tools like, uh, like Tracker has a really detailed analytics tool that lets you see how you're progressing through mm. the different stories and different features, uh, which is something that we can use. Um, but in general, we try to steer clear of those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just just reporting on the work being done. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, it's generally good enough. I mean, whichever direction you're burning, like that would make sense because then it seems like the conceptual thing you have to tell people is this is representative of us delivering features, basically, mm-hmm. right? Every time we complete one of these tasks, it gets yeah. us closer to business value or exactly. whatever. And, no, and that, so that's that's, uh, that's what the task represents. Yeah, yeah. Each one is user value, right? And every point that you're get delivering is one point of user value. Right, right. And uh, it's it's definitely a mindset, mindset shift. It is oftentimes difficult conversations, but um, clients generally trust us because they are coming, coming to Pivotal Labs for a reason. And oftentimes uh, what we tell them is, this is going to be very weird. It's just going to be uncomfortable. You just 
have to trust in us, try it for a couple months and you will really see the value in mm. it. And that's what I tell all my, uh, all my client devs and my peers when you're working on a project. All right. Well, how long have you been living in Singapore? I've been in Singapore for now eight years. Oh, so eight years. Long. Wow. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so when you came here yes. and, and you've been here this whole time, what is, what is one food item that they uh, only have here? Or, or it could also be a food item that's elsewhere, but it's in a certain style here. I, or I mean, is there not one? Uh, Singapore, the beautiful thing about Singapore is that it's like a cultural melting pot. You right. get cuisines from pretty much anywhere in the world. And sometimes it's like a slightly different take on everything. For example, we have Indian food in Singapore. It's like from, it's kind of Malaysia, Malaysian Indian food. Right, it's like right. pratas and... Roti John, murtabak. Uh-huh. It's like a very different thing from Indian food from India. Right. It's, it's sort of like American Chinese food. And basically, that's is- one. You also have chicken rice, which people always tout as the one the one thing you have to try. So uh, what's, a ch- what's chicken rice? Oh, chicken rice. Uh, it's basically uh, boiled chicken uh-huh. on top of fragrant rice. Oh, okay, it's okay. relatively healthy. And uh, <laughs> right. it's it's uh, it's delicious. As well. I, I bet it's healthier than those uh, those those like hanging slabs of bacon that I see everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get that as well. Right, right. Um, one of my favorite combination in Singapore, just because of the diversity, is you get like really good craft beer ah. with dim sum from like you know Chinese dim sum and Malay satay. Put these together, it's a delicious meal. Oh, yeah. yeah. Huh, huh. So, so, so then along those lines, the other thing I'm always interested in is like how people go, the ceremony of how they eat things, right? Mm. And, and uh, you know, like for example, well, let me ask you this one. You probably figured this out. Okay. It's popular here in Singapore and elsewhere. You get one of those big cast iron pots mm-hmm. that's all like sizzling. There's even in the mall, there's like this little yeah. strip that's like, mm-hmm. cook it your way or yeah. whatever. But like, so, so how do you operate that? So I get, I get one of these meals with this pot. It's all sizzling. <laughs> yeah. And usually it's dry. Let's just take the dry one. There's no mm-hmm. soup. And each thing is kind of perfectly compartmentalized on its <laughs> yeah. own. And I might have some little side condiments. Like, yeah. what do I do with that? Uh, I think, I don't think I've received like official instruction on how to do this. But generally what I end up doing is I just let the meat cook uh-huh. with some of the condiments on it. And oh, that's you flavor the meat as yeah, it's cooking. Yeah, I flavor the meat as it's cooking. That's good. Yeah. yeah it's, huh. it's delicious. Okay. And uh, you cook it to the level you want. And once you're, you're pretty much happy with how cooked it is, you can just mix it all together and then you can. I see. Yeah. That's fascinating. So oh. the whole point is the meat is still cooking. <laughs> yeah. I'm repeating back what you said. And you yeah. season it with the condiments. Mm-hmm. And then the act of mixing it with everything else cools it down and stops yes. the cooking. And yeah. then you can eat it. Yep. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> that's kind of like the, you know, when you go to a Korean barbecue and you get the uncooked stuff and exactly. you cook it exactly yeah, the way similar. you want. It's similar. It's huh. similar. But I don't think it's like a Singaporean uh, thing per se. I, yeah, I'm sure that's the way pot, uh, it like, works everywhere. Yeah, the, the hot plate that you're talking about, I think it's, um, it's a Japanese thing. Yeah, still, yeah. It's, 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 it's at Korean very, restaurants a lot, too. It's a Korean. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Maybe it could I'm be both, sure. but I, that's I, where I always get it at a Korean yeah. restaurant. That's awesome. All right. Well, that's good. Well, uh, if people wanted to, I don't know, catch up with you or see what you're doing, you got like a Twitter account or anything I'm like that? I'm not really um, really active on Twitter, but my Twitter handle is, um, it's Rahul Rajiv without any of the uh, vowels in it. All so right. it's just R-H-L-R-J-V. And my, that's the same as my GitHub account and if you are hearing this from inside pivotal 
or even outside my email is rrajiv at pivotal.io. There you go. Well, thanks. Well, thanks for going over this. It was great. Sure thing. It's great talking to you. <laughs> well, as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. If you want to get all the, uh, the old episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations. And uh, we also post show notes somewhere. I know, at pivotal.io slash podcast. Usually every Thursday or as I do nowadays whenever I get around to it. So we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.